When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. England through, Hancock out. It's the dream combo, isn't it? Four. For me, politics is a marketplace. It's like, give me a pitch. Three. Uh, Labour does not share the values of its previous voters, and there's no way it can keep them. Two. I was accused last week by some listeners of Pearson sounding a bit hysterical, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rein Never. it in. Never. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Sir Matt Hancock has finally gone. It took him 48 hours to realise that the idea of him clinging onto office after he broke social distancing rules in, shall we say, a rather spectacular fashion (laughs) was, well, a non-starter with the British public. Even more worrying was that the Prime Minister, after his Health Secretary was caught canoodling in the office thought that he could get away with insisting the matter was closed. He clearly changed his tune once he read Alison Pearson's latest Telegraph exocet. <laughs> Trust me, wrote co-pilot Pearson, publicly informing our Prime Minister that his health secretary would soon be leaving high office. This matter is not closed, she wrote. There are millions of us and we are raging now. We will not allow it to be closed. If the government permits one law for Hancock and important people and another for the rest of us, then it is morally bankrupt. Hancock's loss was Sajid Javid's gain. The return of the Saj has brought a definite change in tone. Covid restrictions in England must come to an end on July the 19th, said the former Chancellor, within hours of becoming the new Health Secretary. Well, Alison, you believed in the 21st of June and you were let down. Do you believe in the 19th of July? Oh, I hope so, Liam. I, I I absolutely hope so. Before we go into the doom and gloom, what a fantastic week. England through, Hancock out. I mean, it's the dream com- combo, isn't it? So what we saw this week, I think in a strange way, you know, Mr. Hancock, I think may have done us all a bit of a favour by exposing the rancid double standards under which we all live. And I I think going forwardly, we can all cite the Hancock exemption if anyone challenges us. There was an absolutely lovely picture of Hancock and his bit of fluff in the window of a gift shop in Thirsk, Yorkshire, which basically said, if you want to come into this shop, don't wear your mask. Matt Hancock doesn't. And I think that that was the tone, really. I mean, First of all, people were speechless, enraged. And then finally, of course, you know, the British sense of humour kicked in. And there were, I'm sure you must have seen them, you know, relentless memes. And I suppose the thing I'd say, having seen that, you know, front page of the sun. Hands, face, arse. Am I allowed to say that on Planet Normal? (laughs) I think we can say hands, face, back to my place, as somebody else said. God. But but there, but there was a you know we can laugh Liam and at this idea that you know Oberfuhrer Hancock who had basically been telling us on the seventeenth of of May that we were now allowed to hug our loved ones after fourteen months of emotional and physical self denial but cautiously cautious hugging only and preferably outside you know had of course been enjoying a pilot scheme with his mistress. <laughs> And then this, what's the word? I can't, varlet. This varlet said, I would be grateful for privacy for my family on this personal matter. Why would he, who has interfered in every crevice of our personal and family lives, uh, dare to expect privacy for his own? But but there was, a, I think that underlying the kind of uproar, Liam, was this sort of sense of absolute justifiable outrage. One woman just said, I wasn't even allowed to kiss my dying father because of Matt Hancock. So it wasn't to do with the affair. People have affairs and they'd all in Downing Street obviously been 
living under intense pressure and so on. It wasn't that. It was about the fact that this man, this health secretary, had shown no understanding or sliver of humanity or compassion to members of the public who had broken his often cruel and arbitrary rules. I mean, how are married couples? I've got a friend who's getting married next weekend. She was filling in a 25-page risk assessment for her wedding so the guests can sit masked and far apart at the wedding and not mingle or dance like the Toffs did at Royal Ascot. And then she, you know, see opens the newspaper and sees a picture of the Secretary of State for Health, who was, Liam, in the Cabinet, the most hard line about these rules, even a flex of the rules, he said, can lead to deaths. So it's absolutely peak them and us this week, us and them, uh, them doing, you know, them taking their pleasures as they like, and the rest of us, you know, don't get to see our dying parents or comfort friends. How about that? Well, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, aren't we? Mm. The day before the Batley and Spend by-election, which we'll come on to. But that means I've just been watching PMQ's Prime Minister's Questions. And Keir Starmer did go exactly on that, on them and us. And I personally think he was right to mm. them and us in terms of Matt Killia Granny Hancock. But I'd slightly extend that, and notwithstanding the fabulous football results, and I watched the football last night, thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm a big football fan, but I do think seeing so many football fans in the fan zones, in a stadium, you know, doing what football fans do, jumping up and down, shouting, hugging, singing, you know, very few people begrudge them that. It's what football fans are meant to to do. But the fact that that's going on and Wimbledon's going on and people are there balancing their punnets of strawberries and their glasses of plonk Mm. while watching the tennis, not socially distanced, yet at the same time, kids are still being excluded from school, self-isolating in these ridiculous bubbles. I think that has got a lot of them and us-isms going. People feeling that these rules now are so unevenly imposed and it seems so random you know if it's not Matt Hancock canoodling during office hours while strict lockdown rules are in place it's business executives allowed to travel freely because you know they add to the gaiety of nation and the wealth of nations while hard-working families the cost of their holidays are doubled or tripled as well as the massive hassle and uncertainty factor by PCR tests and all the rest of it. And this schools thing in particular, I think, is really winding people up. And I confess, as a broadcaster, I don't think the broadcast media, a lot of it, gets it. There aren't, you know, it's people of parenting age. It's people who have kids, and they are underrepresented among broadcasters, I must say. They're not realising how the imposition of bubbles, kids getting sent home at very short notice, often a couple of hours notice, the childcare nightmare that that entails, Mm. the psychological impact on the young children and not so young children, children facing big public exams that that entails. I do have a dog in this fight. I have three children of school or university age, as you know, and frankly, you know, my eldest two kids, undergraduate pretty much ruined. A-levels, pretty much ruined. My youngest kid, he's coming into his GCSE year now. And if another academic year is monstered by these ridiculous dogmatic rules, driven, I think, in, in part by the teaching unions, with kids testing positive for COVID at almost no statistical harm to themselves, or indeed to teachers, the majority of whom are or will be double jabbed by the time the new school year starts. I think if we were in another school year, Alison, that would be absolutely monstrous for our society. And the UK would be almost a complete outlier across countries in terms of the the burden we are imposing on our children during this pandemic. Yes, I absolutely agree, Liam. I was delighted to see The Telegraph this week starting its campaign for children saying that this bubbling, this enormous number of tests being done on school children and then they are, you know, self-isolating, has quadrupled over the past fortnight. You're going over 370,000 children out of school every day with, as you say, 
all the collateral chaos for parents who are, you know, trying to make a living. The Telegraph highlighted that it was children, particularly in disadvantaged parts of the country, who were twice as likely to be sent home. And I think we have to, again, let's let's trace this back to Matt Hancock, because you will remember that when the powers that be, when Boris and the cabal were discussing whether to go ahead with the June the 21st raising of restrictions, what was going to be Freedom Day, it does seem that Matt Hancock kept some vital data back because, as we know, he's a, he was a great fan of the rules that he was breaking, wasn't he? But if you think about that, because schools and clubs and brownies and scouts and so on were aiming for Freedom Day, all of this great raft of lovely events and trips and all the end of term rituals have now just been cancelled. You've got parents peering in through the bars of the sort of school gate at the sports day. And then, as you say, people are looking at Wimbledon or Wembley and thinking, hang on, I can't watch my nine-year-old's egg and spoon race. Absolutely ludicrous. So, So the Telegraph, I'm very, very glad to say is demanding that these bubbles and self-isolating madness ends. But there's a bigger point here, Liam. So Matt Hancock purchased 384 million lateral flow tests at a cost of £1.3 billion. Now, I think this testing, they've run out of deaths to scare us with. And I am convinced that the large number of tests is to find positive cases so that every night on the news, Sophie Rayworth can say there were 21,000 more cases today. The LFTs, the testing in certain schools has been ramped up from three times a week to almost daily. Now, this is a really crucial point, Liam. In the United States, the FDA, uh, that's the Food and Drugs Administration, has banned the Innova LFTs because they are so useless and up to 375,000 British school children every day are being forced to self-isolate on account of a test which American scientists say should be, and I quote, thrown in the bin. And, you know, as you say, the children are not at risk from this virus if they get it and they acquire the immunity, which is going to be, you know, it's absolutely painless way of acquiring immunity. They'll probably have a better quality immunity than we have got from the vaccine. So anyway, listen, I was accused last week by some listeners of sound, of Pearson sounding a bit hysterical. So I'm going to, I'm going to rein it in. Never. Always <laughs> dignified, even when launching a, a column so powerful that the Prime Minister <laughs> was shaking in his boots. Matt, Matt. She's gone into one. I'm afraid you have to go. Yes, she's gone completely nuts. Yes, yes. If I had played even a tiny part in the defenestration of that weasel. Weasel, varlet. It's just like a sort of, you're like the bard. You know, he's a Shakespearean (laughs) insult. You bead, you acorn, you minimus of hindering nutgrass. You pimple on the pilot scheme of life. (laughs) Before we come on to Sajid Javid, which I think is genuinely interesting, new health secretary, Planet Normal regulars will remember the marvellous interview with Robert Styler, whose wife Josephine was in a care home and he was unable to visit her. And Our best guest ever. I know, wonderful man. So Robert, on hearing the news about Health Secretary Hancock, just fired off an email to me and he said, you are so right. Hypocrisy is nowhere near strong enough to describe the actions of this man who set the rules for us. I cannot express fully how I feel when I think that I was not allowed to be with the love of my life, even in the same room for a year, and was not there to say goodbye to her. And there is this despicable rat having his end away in his luxury office and telling us how we should behave. He is as false as a wagon load of monkeys, but who cares? Like so many politicians, he might fall into the midden, but will no doubt come up with a golden spoon in his mouth. So that's, you know, a venerable elderly citizen, lifelong Tory voter and Tory 
Donor. Don't mess with Robert Styler. Don't ever mess with Robert Styler. <laughs> no, I, I know. That's a, the, the smack of firm authority. But tell <laughs> listeners a bit, because you know Sajid Javid. Do you, do you think, you know, when he says, we see no reason to go beyond July the 19th, make no mistake, the restrictions on our freedom must come to an end. And he actually used the word irreversible. C- can we trust him more than we could trust Hancock? Yeah, I do know Sajid Javid a fair bit. We have a big shared interest in housing. He wrote the preface to a book I recently wrote on on housing. And I've got to know him over the years, big shared interest in, in the economy, of course. Mm. And that's, that is the essence of him. He's a very analytical bloke. A lot of politicians don't really get numbers and statistics. Rishi Sunak does and Sajid Javid does as well. And just before we go on, Alison, I think it is worth saying to echo some of your points earlier that even though we do have lots of cases, well, firstly, as a non-scientist, for me, Mm. cases without hospitalizations and deaths equals immunity, right? (laughs) Right, to make that point. But also, and I've said this on Planet Normal several times, if you draw a graph of the number of cases in the UK, in terms of the number of tests carried out, our cases per test carried out rate are lower than France, lower than Germany, lower than the US. Are they? Goodness. We are testing so many people. That's why we're getting lots of cases. And I, I do think you're right. I do think there's a sense that this high number of cases that scare the bejesus out of so many people who don't think through, well, what's a case? If, and if you're not being hospitalised and you're not dead, then is that, you know, isn't that just inevitable? You're going to have cases going up if you are doing lots and lots more tests than other countries per head, which we are, by the way. And I think that Sajid Javid gets all this. I think Sajid Javid, who has been outside of frontline politics since he had that row with Dominic Cummings early last year. He's been spending a lot of time looking at the data in the cold light of day without having to make tough decisions, without being in the cabinet room and seeing all those psychodramas and rows between the various parts of government. And I think it's done him a lot of good, not just in terms of the timing politically for his career, but in terms of his ability to think clearly and unless you know, we are really mistaken, and we might be. I think the words that he's been using since he became health secretary, which have been very, very strong, I see no reason why July the 19th should not be the end of all this, must come to an end, this lockdown, said Javid. He won't have said those words freelance. He will have cleared those words with the prime minister. Exactly. That's the point. Mm. He will have done a deal about those words before he took the job, frankly. And since then, I think the scientists have fallen in line. We've had words from Chris Whitty. I wish to just say, because we've had a bit of a pop at Chris Whitty over the months, haven't we? You used to call him oddly reassuring and reassuringly odd, but then you slightly went off him a bit, didn't you? I did. I mean, he wasn't quite a varlet or a weasel, (laughs) but he wasn't your favourite person for a while. But we should just say, whatever your views, those morons who attacked Chris Whitty in London, getting I mean, just utter thugs. I hope they get proper fines and even sentences, not necessarily custodial sentences, but you do not attack anyone like that. And you certainly don't attack somebody who holds high public office. And whatever your views of what he has done has been, I don't say for a minute, he hasn't been doing his best in trying to do what's right for the country, according to his views, to the best of his ability. And we should just just say that. But even Chris Whitty, who has been pretty determined. Cautious. Cautious. Yeah, that's the word, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Even he is now starting to change his tune. I've been talking to scientists on GB News all week. There is a sense now that the scientific community is coming into line and that July 19th will be it. Thank God if it is. I'm just hoping, Liam, that Sajid Javid doesn't get sort of banjaxed by, you know, the sage blob. Rishi Sunak had echoed Javid actually and said that 19th of July will mean no more lockdowns. And then we had Peter Horby of, wait for this, chairman of 
Nerve tag. Nerve tag. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. So Dr. Professor Horby, whatever he is, said, that they, said listen to this, that the government should not rush into easing COVID restrictions in July. Rush. It's only been 15 months, mate. Take your time, you know, rush. That's what they think at the new and emerging respiratory virus threats advisory group. <laughs> Nerve tag. I appeared on GB News actually with a, with a, a very nice uh, Dr. Tang. Charming man. But you see, it was quite obvious from his answers that really they're quite enjoying this because we're a great experiment for them, aren't we? We're the little lab rats. And, you know, the more time they have with us in the lab running around the little sort of, you know, through the little tunnels. The little hamster wheel of doom. Hamster wheel of doom. But just to say, that one scientist who is now emerging, I think, as Planet Normal's kind of scientist, in fact, we should try and get him on, Professor Sir John Bell, who is the Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford, and Sir, Sir John Bell says that that the vaccines are, guess what, holding up really well against the variants. And there was a marvellous uh, moment on Channel 4 News where, of course, they were all saying, oh, my God, look at this, the dreadful number of cases, we're all doomed. And Sir John said, this is trivial, actually. Most who test positive are under 30 and they don't get very sick. And it was a marvellous moment, Liam, because you thought, yes, that's absolutely right. I thought you'd given up watching Channel 4 News since I left. I feel all deflated. If my blood pressure ever settles down, I find it's a few moments of, you know, more, more terrible atrocities that our country has committed that no one's ever heard of is always is always good for getting the Pearson red buttons pressed. But just quickly, George, our NHS England insider. Our senior source in NHS England. George has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity. We can't stand up George's statistics because by definition they haven't been published yet and they may not be published at all, but we are fully confident of their veracity. Yes. So George points out that the number of hospitalizations, which is about 1,400, 1,440 now versus 40,000 in January. And this, Liam, is less than 10% of what SAGE would predict from the level of cases you've just mentioned. All right, let's let that sink in. That's the break between cases and hospitalizations, isn't it? That's the break. That's what the vaccine doing its work. So the cancellation of June the 21st was based on a prediction by SAGE that's now turned out to be less than 10% of the hospitalizations that SAGE would predict from the level of cases we have now. And George uh, has done a bit of digging for us this week George says an average of six COVID deaths a day since the beginning of May. And that, Liam, let's bear this in mind. There are an average of 1,600 deaths every single day in the United Kingdom. So COVID is causing six of that 1,600. And that compares to 17 deaths per day in April, 55 deaths per day in March, and 352 deaths per day in February. George says there has been a barely perceptible increase in ICU occupancy. It's up at 10% from 3% a month ago, but it's still way below the 75% occupancy of intensive care at the end of January. And George is very confident that everything, you know, little, little bits of increases here and there, but basically everything is plateauing and we, there is, as we know, very little justification at all for any further restrictions. I'm Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. 
It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this. Now, the day this podcast is released, Thursday the 1st of July, is the Batley and Spen by-election. It seems none of the main parties, though, certainly not Tory Labour or the Lib Dems, are willing to discuss the huge issue that looms over this contest. Someone we must refer to only as the teacher isn't returning to their teaching job at Batley Grammar School for fear of physical reprisals, having shown an image of the Prophet Muhammad during a religious studies lesson in March, with an independent investigation having since cleared the teacher of any wrongdoing or intent to cause offence. One party standing in Batley and Spen that is talking about the teacher is the SDP. Yes, that's right, the party set up back in the day by Dr David Owen. Today's SDP leader is William Clouston, and I thought it would be interesting to invite him to stow away on Planet Normal. William, campaigning seems to have got pretty nasty up there in Batley and Spen. We've had Labour handing out leaflets showing a picture of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson shaking hands with the Hindu uh, president of India, Narendra Modi, as a way of saying to Muslim voters that the Conservatives aren't on their side. Well, Labour's tactics in this respect are really an act of desperation, and uh, they're losing the Muslim vote, and they're, they're looking at ways of shoring that up. But it's incredibly divisive to do this, to weaponize these issues. I mean, right from the start, you know, this has been going on for several weeks, at the start of the campaign, you speak to many young Muslim uh, voters in, in the centre of Batley, and their main preoccupation was Palestine. And they would ask our activists, what, what's your position on Palestine? Well, really, the SDP's position <laughs> on this election is to try and uh, a campaign on reindustrialization and housing and, and, and investment. And really, we should focus on those issues. I th- as I say, I think it's not been helpful. But it does illustrate the Labour Party's problems, uh, just to, in terms of its offer, because... What they're trying to do is, um, and it's, it's, it's an impossible task, but they're trying to unite under one tent, effectively, one political tent. Labour Party is in secular decline. It's uh, becoming a, a, effectively a big version of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, it's shedding. It's gone through this process of shedding uh, its core working class uh, vote in the North. And there's a reason for that, and it's a basic reason, very fundamental reason. Uh, Labour does not share the values of its previous voters, and there's no way it can keep them. I mean, this is a cultural shift. Uh, it's a secular sort of rotation, and those red wall seats will just gradually uh, cede to the Tories. And there's very little they can do about it. I mean, the, the, if you look at the PLP and the activists in the Labour Party, their ideas are basically ID politics and other things. I mean, they've completely lost the plot, totally disconnected to its previous uh, voter base. So it doesn't really matter, Liam. If, 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 if Keir Starmer is replaced... He's replaced with someone that has the same problems because, as I say, they're, they're, there's a fundamental incompatibility of what they're trying to convene. It can't be done. Um, and that's so I'll, I'll wait and see. But it won't make any difference if, he, if, he's, if he's replaced. So tell us about the SDP. What's your relation to the original SDP led by Dr. David Owen that many of our listeners will be aware of? Uh, and what are your policies in Batley? And spent. Well, basically, uh, as many people know, the, the origin of the party is back to 1981. And basically, the three-line summary of that is that the, the Gang of Four set up the SDP in 81. David Owen kept and protected its independence uh, in, in the late 80s. And the grassroots uh, members kept it uh, going right to this day. And there are basically three or four things from, from the early days that we've kept. I mean, it's a basically a the social market approach to running the economy. Uh, you know, the idea that the state and the market are not uh, opponents, they're complementary parts of the same society, that's still there. We've always been controversial interests. I know it's quite subversive as an idea in politics, but basically I see no reason why I should vote for parties that basically just back for half half the economy. If you vote Labour, you're, you're looking at the public sector, and if you vote Tory, you're looking at the market. It's not a sensible approach. And the other thing, a major thing we take retained from the from the old days is a commitment to electoral reform because we believe people can't vote honestly uh, until we get that and also we don't think our present uh, constitutional and electoral system has served us well particularly uh, in terms of how the duopoly is i mean in terms of batley and span it's very interesting i mean we were up in in hartlepool obviously and we also had the airdrie by-election now all three of those towns 
are basically post-industrial places. And what we've seen over the last 30 years, 40 years, is deindustrialization. I think the manufacturing industry now is down at about 9% of GDP from uh, about 33% in the late 70s. So the effects of that on these towns has been catastrophic. And you've got to remember that the, the foundation of these towns and the foundation of society in these towns was the good quality industrial job and the industrial wage. That was the foundation of the family in places like Batley. So you can't, if you're serious, you can't fight an election like this without addressing yourself to how we're going to reindustrialize. And there are lots of ways we can do that. But the first, one of the first things is that you've got to elect a government that's actually committed to it. We would argue that it doesn't really matter. You could have New Labour or the Tories. They've been preoccupied with services. They've been preoccupied with university education and not uh, training and proper skills. And there hasn't been any, they've been indifferent, Liam, to what is made, where and by whom. And if you continue to elect Labour or, or Conservative politicians that are basically economic liberals in that sense, then all your manufacturing goes to the Southeast uh, Asian zone and you have very little left. And that's why we have what we have in Hartlepool, Batley and Airdrie. You are attracting a lot of attention, if I may say so, for what is currently quite a small party. You've got high-profile supporters in the media like Rod Little, say, a former Planet Normal guest. Indeed, my co-pilot, Alison Pearson, is very interested in the ideas of the SDP. Do you really think you can make a breakthrough? And, and what are your tactics in a place like Batley and Spen? What is a very high-profile by-election? I don't think there's any instant success, Liam. I think we've we've found this in the recent resurgence of the SDP, which basically started in late 2018 when we issued a document called the New Declaration. Well, it's been gradual growth. It's been attritional. You know, you've got to build the party up at its regional level and you've got to get activists and build capacity to fight elections. And we contested the London mayoral election in May, you know, for the first time, you know, with first Reference to second preference, we got about 37,000 votes. Uh, we got about 55,000 votes across the country in local elections then. Now, even a couple of years ago, that would have been unthinkable. But I think what the, the optimism that we have in the party is basically that we've done the intellectual work. We've, we have a coherent uh, red-blue policy mix that's thought through and it makes sense. And, and that's what people find attractive. We're, we're, we're serious. You know, it's not a, a sort of uh, here today, gone tomorrow thing. But I, I, honestly, it will take time. And we've convened sensible people who know that we will take a few knocks in these by-elections. But small parties, if, you, if, you're not a, if you're a political party and you're not a think tank, you've got to contest these things. You've got to get used to uh, getting a hit a few times. I mean, there are 16 candidates in Batley. This will be very difficult for us to, to get a lot of votes, but we'll continue uh, to do it. We've convened a team and membership that are uh, uh, you know, reconciled to the fact that it'll take a bit of time. And we're just going to go for the summit. It will take time. But uh, in many respects, the SDP that we have now is, is actually more stable than the one we had in 81. I mean, there were quite serious differences between Jenkins and Owen, for instance. We just don't have that now. I mean, I know we're much smaller, but we, we know what we're about and uh, we're just going to go for the summit. So give us some examples, William, of some policy areas where the SDP is offering something different. A lot of our listeners will be intrigued by what you've said. They'll admire Dr. David Owen. They'll have maybe even voted for the SDP back in the day. So pitch us some policies that Planet Normal listeners might find interesting? Well, perhaps the best example of uh, how red and blue mixed policy works uh, is actually an area that you're interested in yourself, which is housing. So we have a housing crisis in the UK. Uh, the public sector capacity to build and manage houses have been basically uh, destroyed. And uh, what are the policy options that people are faced with? So on the Labour Party side, they have a policy of, of uh, large-scale council house building. We think that's very sensible. That's a very sensible policy. That's exactly what we should be doing. Uh, but the problem is they combine that sensible policy with a, with the, a rather foolish policy and having been committed to very, very high levels of immigration. Now, if you put, put the two together, you get failure. Likewise, on the Tory side, you've got uh, a commitment to lower immigration. They'll fail in that, of course, as they always fail. But they, they have, uh, uh, you know, at least a commitment to slightly lower uh, levels of net migration. 
And, uh, but they have no commitment at all to do anything on the public sector side about housing. So again, it'll end in failure. The, the winning numbers on something like housing is a red and blue mix. You have significantly, you, ha- you basically have a, a mass immigration pause. Uh, and this will be for a long time. You, you bring down immigration, which incidentally will have the side effects of improving wages, we think, and incentivize training domestically. But you, you reduce immigration significantly and you roll your sleeves up and you build millions of council houses. And that's the only, that's the only mix that actually will address the issue. There are lots of other examples, but basically our red and blue approach, where you have a, a policy which is perceived as a, as a right-wing policy, you combine it with a, a policy which is perceived as a left-wing one. Actually, it's a very good platform, and it does work in many areas. So you want the private sector to work better. You want antitrust-type policies, sort of Theodore Roosevelt-type policies to make sure that the supply side of the economy delivers more for consumers. But would you want to nationalise the railways? Would you want to nationalise some of our other utilities? Yes, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think nationalisation of railways is a no-brainer, and it's going to happen anyway, Liam, because the system, I mean, it was a disastrous uh, privatisation, I think, and one that Major did largely because he wanted to be seen as a, to to carry on in the vanguard of of Thatcherism, really. But it made no sense at all. And it it ended up in a bizarre situation where, you know, we had the state railway companies of various European countries running our own railways. Now, I, I think one of the big problems with Tory politics within the Tory party is actually complete indifference. And now for a governing party to be indifferent to who runs our railways, you know, it's ridiculous. I mean, it it didn't occur to them that you can have a British railway system that was, uh, could be an emblem of British management and expertise and engineering, engineering, particularly because I see no reason at all why we shouldn't make our own locomotives and, and, and trains. I mean, you know, if you ask someone in crew, or Swindon, how has the policy affected you? They'll tell you exactly how. I mean, it was just, it's just an illustration of how little they really cared. Um, so it wasn't that the Tories objected to the state running railways. It was that they objected to us running our own railways. And tell us a little bit about yourself, William Clouston. You're obviously a very articulate guy and a shrewd observer of politics. How did you become leader of the SDP and what were you doing before that? Well, I joined, I actually joined, my father was a member of the Labour Party, so this goes back all the way, and left the Labour Party as a founder member in 1981. And so I was only 15 or 16 at that stage, and I, I joined the SDP then, and I saw, saw it in its uh, sort of white heat stage. Uh, and I stayed with the SDP right to the bitter end, I voted against the merger and stayed with Owen until about 1990, when it, it literally all sort of fell apart when he left. But thereafter, I wasn't really involved in politics. Uh, you know, I was building a business and uh, and getting on with life and raising a family. And in the late nineties, a, a conservative friend uh, twisted my arm, and I joined the Tory party for four years. And I was offered a, a council seat, and uh, and I took that. I contested it and won it. And I, I stood for election for the Tories in, in uh, two thousand one in the Keep the Pound uh, election. But I was never really comfortable in the Tory party. I mean, I, I said, actually, when I was poached by the Tories, that I was really a social democrat. And they said, well, it doesn't matter, William, as long as you've got clean fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and, and that's the way it was. I mean, so, but anyway, that didn't last. I wasn't really comfortable with it. Really, by chance, I saw Dr. David Owen speak well before the, the 2016 referendum, EU referendum. And uh, he came up to speak at a book festival and I was chatting to him afterwards about the glory days in the SDP. And he said, well, it's still going. And I, I wow. said, I, to be honest, Liam, I didn't know it was still going. And I, as I say, it's good to be part of something that's serious in politics. It's small, but it's serious. And if you get your foundations right, Liam, you never know. William, one final question, if I may. I mean, Dr. David Owen's a good friend of this podcast. Both Alison and I know him well and have talked to him over the years about lots and lots of things. And he always insists, people say I'm a conservative, but I'm really not a conservative. Why are you not a conservative? What is it that makes you different? There's more than a hint of indifference in conservative reactions and politics. I mean, indifference is the word that that really defines it. It, it, they, They think things don't matter. And I think social democrats think that things, various things, do matter. As I said, you know, who who runs our railways matters. Whether young people have a chance to do the normal thing and 
you know, meet someone, possibly pair up and get a flat and then get a house and raise a family and, and have a house that's affordable. It's very difficult to do that in the southeast. That matters. Now, Tory, the general Tory reaction is to shrug your shoulders and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Well, if you, if you, if you think it doesn't matter, then you're not, you're not, you don't share our type of politics. And the second thing, Liam, is that I think the attitude that it doesn't matter sort of coincides with the attitude that, the, that we can't do anything about it. So I think something we share with David Owen is a belief in the capacity of the state to get it right. I mean, and, you know, that, that's very important strand of SDP thinking. Good states, well-managed economies who get things right, uh, can, you know, the sky is the limit. I mean, look at Singapore as a state. It has very few resources, and it runs a very, quite a similar program to us, actually. High state intervention in some areas, but a, a very uh, efficient free market uh, sector as well. And I think that's the, that's the winning number, that you can get that, but you've got to have a commitment to the state side as well. William Clouston, really good to talk to you. Thanks so much for stowing away with us to Planet Normal. Cheers. Thanks, Liam. Very, very kind of you to ask me. Thank you. Now, before you respond, Alison, I should say a full list of candidates in the Batley and Spend by-election being held on the 1st of July. The day this podcast is released can be found on the Telegraph website. So we've been thinking about getting William Clouston on the podcast for a long time, haven't we? Mm. And this Batley and Spend by-election seemed like an opportune moment. What did you think? I don't know about you, Liam, he, you know, he strikes a lot of the right notes for me. I mean, I'm a, a head and a heart person. So I think the fact that he can talk about being controversial interests, but also sensible about lower immigration. I mean, housing is your, you know, I think you've written the only interesting book on housing in human history, haven't you? But talking about lower immigration, talking about the fact that I think it's interesting that when people worry about NIMBYs in the southeast. I think a lot of these people in places like Chesham and Amersham, they know, don't they, that when they're built throwing up these big estates, they won't be planning for the extra GP surgeries and the schools. And the other thing I think that really strikes us this week, doesn't it, when we've seen what you talked about with, oh, you know, high-flying businessmen, they don't have to quarantine, effectively a free pass for plutocrats so we're in thick them and us territory. So someone like William Clouston, who's trying to pitch us, not them, and to suggest that things do matter. I suppose I would think that that would be what marks me out maybe as a journalist is I care. I mean, throughout these past 15 months, when we've been through the mill, haven't we, with stories from wonderful listeners and so much despair and suffering and, and also resilience and humour. And if you care, then you maybe are struggling a bit to find a political party that does also care. But moving on to Batley and Spen, I mean, you know, what a fascinating coming together of different forces. I mean, who would think that in 21st century Britain, Palestine would be looming large as perhaps the defining topic at an election? Indeed. And it's not just Palestine, though. That does play very big with the large South Asian Muslim community in the constituency, a community which has traditionally voted en masse for Labour, but is now being urged not to by George Galloway, of course, who has long been positioned as a champion of the rights of Muslim people in many different contexts. And I think what was really interesting about William Clouston's contribution is that the SDP, apart from Galloway, they're pretty much the only people talking about this teacher situation. Yes. The main political parties have completely absolved themselves of any kind of responsibility or, or even the need to acknowledge the fact that somebody is not returning to the school where they work, where they're qualified to work, where they've been allowed to return after an independent inquiry into their action because they're in fear of their life. And nobody's meant to mention that. And Labour and the Tories and the Lib Dems are not mentioning it. And that's mad. Well, it's cowardly, isn't it? And it's it's dreadful that, you know, something that we thought we'd got rid of, like sort of blasphemy, 
should again be you know be looming large in a in a in a contemporary election but something that strikes me apart from we should have a quick word about the amazing Mr Galloway who is I mean, he is Mephistopheles with kind of fire breathing. I mean, he is an incredible, whatever you think of him, he's a, he, you know, he's a charismatic man and an extraordinary orator, isn't he, Liam? He certainly is. He's also, um, I don't share too many of his views as I'm sure you don't, Alison. He's also an extremely acute political analyst and he sees round corners. The, ba- the way the best campaigners do. And he can insert himself skillfully into a situation and cause havoc. The fact that he is drawing votes away in big numbers from that Labour captive Muslim vote that they've relied on in seats like Batley and Spen across the north of England for a generation and more, the fact that he is drawing them away will probably cost Labour the seats. That's what the bookies are saying. The odds on bets have been pro-Tory, predicting a Conservative win in Batley and Spen for a number of weeks now. And if Starmer loses Batley and Spen, having just lost Hartlepool, so a Labour Party in opposition failing to hold two of its own seats in by-elections in the midst of a Conservative government, I mean, that hasn't happened for decades, if ever. It is quite astonishing, but I I think William Clouston is onto something because what's happening is we are witnessing the left eating itself. So Kim Ledbetter, who's the Labour candidate in Batley and Spen, now she is the sister of the wonderful Joe Cox, who you'll remember, Liam, was tragically murdered by some sort of right-wing nutter. So Kim Ledbetter steps forward, should be a rather plausible, kind of quite passionate candidate for, I mean, she's obviously grown up in the constituency. She's got a good backstory to tell. But then she's out campaigning and is having local South Asian men shouting at her about, oh, do you support LGBT? So the Labour Party is completely split down the middle in the culture wars, isn't it? On the one hand, it's dependent in that area on the Muslim vote. On the other hand, it supports the sort of further reaches of identity politics, which are anathema to that vote they're trying to attract. So I think you're right. I mean, I think they could you know, very well lose. And then there will be this crisis for Keir Starmer because they can't, they, they lost their deposit in Chesham and Amersham, remember, Liam? I mean, you know, so they, so they can't speak to the, not forget the blue wall, it's the blue rinse wall. They can't speak to the blue <laughs> rinse wall. They've lost their relevance, as uh, William Clouston said, in, you know, working class areas, because the working class people in those areas know that, you know, the modern Labour Party, metropolitan Corbynists, they despise them. But if Keir Starmer has a leadership challenge, as you suggest, what on earth is going to happen? Because you've still got this fundamental thing that the Corbynists who joined, wasn't it sort of, you know, joined Labour for a pound or something? Do you remember that? Yeah, thanks for that, Ed Miliband. Very clever, Ed. Yeah, good one. So, so, so the chances of the Labour leadership contest coming at, up with anyone that I could vote, you know, I could, you know, vote for as Prime Minister, you know, is vanishingly remote, isn't it? Because Starmer's probably, you know, the, the closest that that's come to for me since Tony Blair, and, and even that's not very close. So, what's going to happen? It, we've heard the name of Dawn Butler mentioned, and I have to say, if Dawn Butler's the answer to Labour's troubles, then uh, you have to wonder what the question is. Yeah, it's worth saying, people that don't know Planet Normal well, I mean, you've voted Labour in the past, I've I voted have. Labour. In the past, we are, we are, okay, we write for the Telegraph, but a lot of Telegraph readers are archetypal, Mm. smart swing voters. For me, politics is a marketplace. It's like, give me a pitch and I might give you my business. I think that's the way most journalists should be. And Starmer is presiding over a Labour Party that isn't managing to land any kind of success in those industrial post-industrial seats. Tories are are building a blue wall that more than trumps what was Labour's red wall. There's a major problem. But I have to say, going back to the first question I asked William Clouston, I feel sorry for Kim Ledbeats. She's got a very hard gig. Mm. She's watched her sister be murdered. And now she's in the middle of what she calls a nasty circus that's come to my home. But she was only in the Labour Party for a few weeks before she was declared the candidate. So a lot of the Labour 
incumbents in the constituency feel that she was kind of airlifted in, even though she is local. That's riled a lot of the Muslim traditionally Labour community. But the Labour Party has really sunk to serious depths. This leaflet that they put Absolutely. out showing Boris Johnson shaking the hand of, you know, the Prime Minister Modi, the leader of one of the biggest economies in the world and one of Britain's main allies, who is obviously Hindu, using that to try and wind up Muslim voters in Batley and Spen to think that the Tories don't have their interest at heart. That's bringing the the, the really divisive politics of the Indian subcontinent to, to Northwest Britain. That's completely out of order. Oh, it was disgusting when I saw that. I, you know, I thought it was a spoof at first. I thought, you know, this is this is tribal politics from, you know, from a completely other part of the world to ours, isn't it? I mean, that they would sink to that level. But coming back to likely candidates, because if the Tories do win, there will be some movement then, I think, to look at Starmer. But say some candidates that you and I might be interested in for a potential general election, maybe an Andy Burnham, you know, they've got, they have got some impressive people. Yvette Cooper is, you know, is a serious person. You know, they're now seen by the actual party members because they would have the sort of taint of Blair. Do you think, Liam, do you think someone like Burnham, who has really increased his profile, hasn't he, during lockdown as the mayor in Manchester really has, you know, been defending his patch, fighting back at Nicola Sturgeon, who decided not not to allow anybody from the northwest to visit Scotland. Oh, you got to love her, haven't you? She moved Hadrian's Wall a couple of hundred miles <laughs> south. I think I think Burnham hit back, didn't he? Didn't he say something like that there were more COVID cases in Dundee than there were in Burnley or wherever? But do you think someone like Burnham, how is someone like Burnham going to get elected Labour leader if the kind of Corbynists have still got the stranglehold on the popular vote in the party? Well, I know a lot of that sort of golden Blairite generation. Well, people like the Millibands, people like Yvette Cooper, people like Andy Burnham, and all of them really have failed to deliver in terms of politics. Andy is the last one of those young Blairites standing. And he wouldn't even consider himself a Blairite. He was actually much closer to Gordon Brown. But he is, I think, electable yeah. by Middle England, if you like. So do where I. Politics is won and lost in this country. He is a, a decent man. He is somebody who comes from a genuinely ordinary, humble background and got made his way to, to Cambridge. Not too shabby for a lad from Merseyside. And yet, I don't think, as you say, Alison, I think you're right. I don't think the party rank and file, it's now so Corbynist. It's, you know, the trots are marching again, aren't they? They just won't have it because Andy Burnham apparently is too right wing. Isn't my tech holding up well? I'm just saying. He doesn't sound like he's in a public urinal. It's a bit of a breakthrough, isn't it? Because really? I've got my head in some foam ball. We should include that is because the listeners are all wondering why Liam sounds like he's in a bloody toilet. You're not in a toilet this week, are you? What have you got on your what have you got on your head? What have you got? I've bought this sort of foam thing that surrounds the mic. There's not much furniture <laughs> here in the GBG's newsrooms. <laughs> <laughs> A few carpet tiles. Of course, we're putting out fantastic television, but uh, the the soft furnishings haven't yet arrived. So I've bought this foam thing that wraps around my mic. So hopefully it's <laughs> a bit of a better experience. But get on with it. Come on. Okay, now onto our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you and your emails are often our highlight of the week. Here's one from Ginny with which I fully endorse. Alison and Liam, I have finally had enough. I have been on the point of rebellion for a while, but the sight of that massive football crowd, maskless shouting and cheering for the England side has pushed me over the edge. Why should they be allowed to do that when in church we are not allowed to sing even socially distanced and behind masks. It is time we Christians were able to express joy, especially at this ordination season, when men and women are committing themselves to serving others in that very demanding role. I shall be singing in church from now on, and I am sure I shall not be alone. Keep up the good work on Planet Normal. Onward, Christian soldiers, Ginny. Well said. 
Here's one from Peter. Hi, Planet Normal team. I'm perhaps a lone voice among your listeners. I was totally despondent when I heard Matt Hancock had finally resigned. <laughs> Why? Well, the longer he could hang on, the more he would enrage the British public and the larger the <laughs> backlash against the idiotic lockdown measures would become. Paradoxically, the longer the Tories drag out this lockdown, the higher the chances that there will never be another one. They will lose the voters one by one, providing an ever larger opposition to a future reintroduction, I hope. Thanks for your podcasts. Finally, a use for Hancock, getting getting us out of lockdown by driving us all mad. This is from Sue. You must be having a wry smile at what is now going on. You've been foremost among the infinitesimally small number of journalists with the courage and integrity to call out the increasingly totalitarian actions of our government and the cowardice of most of our elected representatives and the dereliction of their duty to those they purport to represent. Now, suddenly everyone's at it. If it has taken the brazen contempt shown by Matt Hancock for the rules and the hardship he has inflicted on the little people, to say nothing of his poor wife and children, to burst the bubble of the Sweden syndrome into which this country has sunk, then maybe, just maybe, he merits some degree of grudging thanks. Clearly, not everyone agrees. This week, The Telegraph carried at least one letter suggesting that Hancock should be forgiven his peccadilloes given the tremendous success of the vaccine programme. Sorry, I was under the impression that Kate Bingham was behind that one. The writers, in common with so many commentators throughout the pandemic, to say nothing of the four legs good, two legs bad social media brigade, ignored the real suffering inflicted on ordinary people by things over which they had no control. Did they witness, as I did, the undeserved distress of an elderly lady, my mum, forcibly incarcerated in the care home she had agreed to go into for a trial period? Were they forced, as I was, to endure being denied the right to comfort my mum at her subsequent passing in hospital, being able to do so only by proxy through text messages and emails from the single member of the family who was allowed to be with her by the inhuman and inhumane rules for which Mr Hancock must take a huge slice of the responsibility. If they did, then their tolerance levels for the hypocrisy shown by Matt Hancock are truly superhuman. You and your co-pilot, Mr Halligan, have been beacons for the liberties I always thought were our birthright. Well, thank you, Sue, for that fantastic email. That's fabulous, Sue. Thank you. That means a lot to us. This is from Liam. Great name. <laughs> I'm an expat living in France. My family and I have been here for 10 years. The kids are 10 and 12. France, like the UK, tackled COVID with a hard lockdown. Like many expats, we split our time between watching French and English TV, trying to work out what was happening to us here and our relatives there. What's become clear since the initial lockdown is that the Brits have been subjected and subservient to an agenda of fear. After the initial lockdown here, my kids have been back at school. They've carried on with their sports and art clubs. Tonight, my local village is full of people enjoying themselves. Masks have disappeared. Our local police, who can be quite heavy handed, are with the people and they don't enforce ridiculous rules. Vive la France. And finally, Liam, on this week's theme of them and us, Richard asks, how rich do you need to be to achieve COVID immunity? <laughs> and Alan inquires... How can it be possible that Matt Hancock can sound both pious and sanctimonious even when he is writing a grovelling letter of resignation? What a man. That's exactly what I thought, Alan, when I read that letter. So bang on. The word sorry, sorry seems to be the hardest word, as Elton John used to sing, Halligan. Oh, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. Alison? I think that marvellous one from Sue, who wasn't yeah. wasn't able to be with her mum. Um, lovely email, yeah, Sue. So absolutely. One of the, um, what do you always say? Rare as rocking horse poo. Um, that charming, yeah. charming phrase. Um, <laughs> beloved Planet Normal mug uh, will be on its way to you, Sue. Just send us your mailing address, Sue. Email us your postal address and the wonderful Theo will get that mug in the post to you. Before we go. Some news about us. Planet Normal will be taking a two-week break from mid-July, not just so your co-pilots can recharge their batteries. As that last listener's pointed out, co-pilot Pearson is losing it 
Some might say unraveling if they were being kind. <laughs> Don't say anything, Halligan. It's the first time Planet Normal has taken a break since we started back in May 2020. So we will be recording next week, as usual, but we won't be with you on the 15th of July or the 22nd of July. We know many of you really enjoy listening and have made Planet Normal part of your weekly routine. So we wanted to let you know about our break and we will rush back faster than the sage scientists when they use the word rush. We really will be (laughs) rushing, rushing back to be with you. And I promise I won't be on red button. I'll be back on amber button, Halligan. Strong amber. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitz, and of course our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 